So we've talked about the Yeti and the Falk monster. We're no, we're no strangers to Bigfoot. I like talking about Bigfoot. I like Bigfoot. One of my favorite monsters. He's kind a of, cool guy. Kind of the king of the cryptids. Now, if you're in Alaska and you run into Bigfoot, he's not quite as friendly as he is anywhere else in the world, it seems. A little different. Though Those Bigfoot stories usually end just a little bit differently. With the popularity of certain television shows these days, surely you've heard the term Alaskan killer Bigfoot. We're yeah. going we're gonna to talk a little bit about the Alaskan Bigfoot phenomenon tonight. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So, a couple strange facts about Alaska. In any given year, 500 to 2,000 people will go missing, never to be seen again in the Alaskan wilderness. That might seem extreme, but when you couple it with the fact that Alaska has the lowest population density in the nation of roughly one person per square mile. You can understand how it'd be easy to disappear. Yeah, I had down 16,000 people have vanished over the past 30 years now. Not vanished. We're not talking about we found the bodies. Yeah. You know, we're talking poof, pulled the plug, vanished off the face of the earth without a trace. Accidental injuries are the third highest cause of death in Alaska. So. Apparently, you can just stumble to your own death in Alaska, and that's kind of common. Got some brutal weather there, too. Well, and and it's, it's, again, it's it's a pretty wild state. A lot of untamed wilderness there, kind of a a frontier, almost. Now, Bigfoot sightings are surprisingly common throughout the entire state of Alaska. Uh, Alaskan Bigfoot sightings have a reputation for being some of the most extreme recorded ever. So, and they've found evidence of nesting sites. There's been the recovery of a possible Bigfoot skeleton. Unidentified hair samples. Witnesses have reported seeing swimming Sasquatches, which seems to be kind of uncommon anywhere else. Right. Especially if you understand that most apes do not like to swim. They're afraid of the water. Entire villages have relocated as a result of Bigfoot depredations. It doesn't seem to be the vegetarian type that we're more familiar with either. It's more definitely of a carnivore. Now, their their Bigfoot is is usually described as being up to 10 foot tall, covered with shaggy coarse hair with elongated arms or that typical Bigfoot. Although 10 foot is pretty big. And uh, also the girth or, or the width. I don't know if you read some of that, but as much as like four foot in chest man, circumference, that's, yeah, a big, that, that's, that's a big, big foot. <laughs> uh, I do have here that the Inuits refer to a species that they know of as the Tornit. And the Tornit used to live in peace with mankind until a young Inuit killed one for damaging his kayak. And ever since then, there are hundreds of stories uh, documenting where the Tornit have attacked hunters mangling and mutilating their bodies so that's that's one story from the the, the natives of the region that they're bigfoot bigfoot in alaska is not messing around man. no no i had found um there's a the locals uh call it nantinuk yeah. um is another name that it's used and it's definitely not what here in central united states we would consider as a, a sasquatch or a bigfoot it's almost got like a spiritual realm uh that control the elements uh, especially fire and water as you said can swim 
some of the natives believe that the reason why it's hard to find is it lives inside trees. Like you could be following it and it literally just kind of merge, blend into the tree like an essence. Well, to go along with that, I, I read somewhere that they, uh, Alaska is sort of a converging place for a lot of ley lines, if you believe in that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the barriers between the spiritual and, and the physical are fairly uh, thin in quite a few places in Alaska. I know that a lot of beliefs, yeah, like you said, the Bigfoot, the Sasquatch, that is sort of a spiritual entity. Mm-hmm. And again, that would, you know, hey, how come we don't find bodies? How come we don't yeah. see, you know, a lot of proof? How, how do they disappear so quickly? Why is every picture so darn fuzzy? Yeah. Now, we are going to ultimately talk about uh, Port Lock and, and some of the areas around there. But uh, one particular area, as Bill had said, entire towns, villages just totally evacuate overnight, which was an occurrence that, uh, in 1949. But I went back, of course, kind of being the, the historian, if you will. And in my research, there was a gentleman by the name of Jeff Davis, and he is a specialist on Alaskan uh, history and, and a researcher. And he mentions that the town of Portlock is uh, probably one of the most mysterious stories he's ever stumbled across. Ancestors fled in 1949 from uh, Portlock, Alaska, but that was not the first time or the second time where there was actually two expeditions that landed in that area. The first was in 1779. It was a Spanish expedition and they came over. They were intending to establish a presence there. Uh, They immediately started getting kind of sick and mysteriousness about it, uh, nausea, vertigo. Some even succumbed to the illnesses and actually died. Within a period of months, they retreated off the coast and the Spanish never came back. Then he goes on and he said the next explorer was actually uh, Nathaniel Portlock, from which the name was given. uh, And it was part of an English group. Uh, In 1785, parties were sent ashore once again and they had found... uh, this would be, I guess, the second account, was an Indian village. And it looked like everybody had just walked out of the village. There was still pots. There was clay clay pots and stuff. Now, there weren't any fires or sign of recent, but it looked like the Indians had just walked away and left everything and and had vanished. Uh, In 1867, a San Francisco newspaper reported, and I thought this was interesting, a group of giants who came down out of the mountains to the shores captured the local people of the town and ate them, ripping them from limb to limb. In the history of 1915, the first cannery uh, went into place to for some of the fishing trade and, and everything there. 1921 was the first post office. 1929, a few years later, the first school, which had over 100 uh, registered students. And then bad things started happening almost immediately as they encroached up on the mountains and especially into the wooded forest regions. Now, back in 1920, there was a man named Albert Petka. Uh, he was going hunting, but he never reached the hills, or so it's believed. They found his body strangled and mutilated just on the outskirts of town. And it was like when they found the body, it was like it had been placed there for someone to find. They quickly identified, because Alaskans are very, of course, uh, up to bear attacks and stuff, and said this definitely was not a bear attack. Uh, Lots of hunters died in that area of Portlock. In 1931, a man named Andrew Kemluck, uh, he was doing some sort of harvesting of timbers, cutting trees and stuff. They found his body with his skull crushed from the backside like someone had come up from behind him with something huge. Apparently, a piece of nearby logging equipment was the weapon of choice of oh. whatever it is that had attacked him. It was it was 
part of a crane is what I read. Oof. And he was found 10 feet away from said crane where, where there was blood on the crane like it had been tossed to the ground. And this was an object. No, no man would have been able to pick this up and use it as a weapon. So I'm envisioning so. this thing swinging and knocking him 10 foot away, yeah. probably. Yeah. Wow. About the same time, there was a gold miner who had headed out for the day, and he, he simply disappeared without a trace. And then sometime later, a man by the name of Tom Larson went out to chop wood for, for fish traps. Uh, he sighted something large and hairy on the beach there at Port Chatham. Uh, he ran back home to get his rifle, and when he returned, he said, uh, you know, he... he 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 drew bead, you know, he, he was aiming at the beast when it kind of stood up and just stared at him. Just looked him right in the eye, and he never could quite explain why he couldn't bring himself to pull the trigger that day. Hmm. So, you know, uh, the area had been played for quite a while since about the time the post office was established, as a matter of fact, 1920, with, uh, with an evil spirit, with some claiming it to be a Sasquatch-like creature, uh, described as a massive, hairy, man-like creature walked on two legs. The locals said it would rip up trees by the roots and turn them upside down to send a message. Now, had you ever come across that in your research of any other Not Bigfoot before, Sasquatch? No. I had neither, but apparently that's a thing that kind of sets the I Alaskan that, Bigfoot. Yeah. They pull up the trees and literally reverse them with yeah. the roots sticking up. Well, and, and for most people, that was considered proof that whatever whatever it was, it was too powerful to be defeated by mere men. Yeah, yeah. That would be hard to do with proper equipment, even. Yeah. Well, I had at one point during Port Lock's history, and you'll hear us refer to Port Chatham, Port Chatham, and Port Lock. I kind of consider them interchangeable. If if they are not the identical spot, they are very, very close. But uh, in, in the Port Lock area, the 1930s to 1940s, there was uh, 15 men in particular that went missing within a two-year period sometime during the 30s and 40s. Now, their bodies were all finally found floating in the shallow lagoons, kind of face down. It was as if they had washed down out of the mountains or, as some may said, been placed there to be found. I believe their bodies were basically torn to shreds when they were found. Yes, it was not a, a, a pretty sight at all. Like, limbs were literally missing. Yeah, there was one season during this time that the cannery workers refused to return to work unless armed guards were provided for their protection. I read that. Yeah, They did a walkout, I guess, and they said, we are not going back to work because of all these men that are disappearing. Some of them reported trees being thrown like hundreds of feet into a house, like demolishing an entire side of the wall of the house. That is some brute strength. This area, yeah, I mean, it was pretty rough. Uh, I know around World War II, uh, some cannery workers went into the mountains to hunt sheep and bear, and they never returned. Uh, The search parties could find no trace of them. And then rumors began to spread in the area that a, a mutilated body had been found and had you know, washed down the mountain into the lagoon area Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, it'd been found dismembered. And like you said, Alaskans, they, they know what a bear attack looks like. And they were like, this was no bear, not a bear, not a bear. Yeah. There didn't seem to be the, the, the scratches and slashes of like, uh, you know, nails, but literally just brute force strength, you know, crushing blows to the skull, limbs ripped away. Now, one of my, one of my more favorite anecdotes that I stumbled upon while doing my reading here. There's a story of a group of hunters that were tracking a moose. They had gone up into the more mountainy area above the town tracking this moose. And uh, when they did, they stumbled across uh, footprints 18 inches long on the ground. And they thought, okay, there's something else out here with us. They were a little concerned. Uh, it quickly became obvious that this creature was tracking the same prey they were. It was also after this moose. And again, this is another, you know, you don't usually hear about Bigfoot doing a lot of hunting in the stories. Yeah, yeah. 
So they came across a place where the grass had been matted down. It was clear that there had been a struggle here, blood everywhere. And they they, they were kind of shocked and dumbfounded. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what they were seeing. I mean, they could kind of piece it together like, okay, whatever this was that, that you know had been tracking this moose had found it. Beat him to the punchline. Now, beyond the, the grass, they found no more moose tracks, but they did find these 18-inch footprints heading up the mountain. So I have to assume that the Bigfoot or Sasquatch or whatever it is, you know, got a hold of that moose and, and beat it down and took off with Packed it. Packed it off. So that's kind of, a, yeah, I mean, physically with its bare hands yeah, was able to subdue a moose. Now, I don't know where your travels have taken you exactly. I, have I haven't been, made it to Alaska yet. Well, I haven't been to Alaska, but I have been to Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. And they have moose in Yellowstone. Yes. And they are not small. No. Those things are massive. And, and they can be very um, fierce. They're grumpy. fierce. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's no small feat for, for any creature, you know, to, to take a moose on one-on-one and then just walk away with it. Now, you had mentioned a, a footprint that was 18 inches. In some of the research, I found as much as 24 inches. Now, that is a all puns intended, a new scaled up big foot. That's a big foot. 24 inches. There was a, a lady that lived outside of Anchorage. Uh, I think it was in 2012, 2013 that she uh, got off work about 11 o'clock, was driving home. Uh, her boyfriend was already at the house. And uh, as she kind of a winding long driveway, Alaska, as you said, you know, very rural area, not a lot of population, but she kind of come around a bend and she had her windows down and her radio on. And, and all of a sudden she saw red eyes reflecting back in, in the headlight. And so she, you know, stopped trying to figure out what this was. And then it stood up and she said that thing was over 12 foot tall and she honked the horn at it, tried to scare it. I guess that kind of peeved it off a little bit. So it kind of started walking towards her. <laughs> she was talking to her boyfriend on her cell phone and, uh, you know, told him get out here now. So he steps out on the front porch, I guess, with a shotgun or a rifle, I think fired a couple shots. The Bigfoot came over and like was leaning on the hood of the car, said, pushed the car. You could feel like the shocks and everything and said, again, 12 foot tall. She was absolutely petrified, which I don't know who wouldn't be petrified. <laughs> but finally, after the gunshots or whatever, it just, it didn't scare off. It just kind of like lost interest. Like, okay, you guys aren't worth it and, and walked away. They went out the next day and I believe she was like a shoe size of a nine or a 10. This foot dwarfed hers this thing was like 24 inches 10 inches wide and it's like holy cow i don't know about you i mean that seems outside the realm of possibility well that to me that's that's that's, that's, that is giant i was gonna say you're you're crossing the line from bigfoot well okay when we talked about yeti and we said there were different sizes of yeti Mm -hmm. and you had your your middling yeti and then you had your your bigfoot sized yeti and then you had your giants that lived in the mountains yeah this sounds like when you're talking about Bigfoot, maybe you know when you get to Alaska, that's where your your giants are at. Maybe they are just extremely hairy giants due to, um, I mean, let's the winter harsh weather. I do have a couple more anecdotes from the the Chatham area. In 1973, three hunters took shelters in that area during a storm, and they claimed that something large prowled around their tent at that night. Uh, it sounded as if it walked on two feet. And then here's another one that I really like this little story. In 1990, an Anchorage paramedic was called to help a 70-year-old native who had suffered a heart attack while incarcerated in the Eagle River Jail. Uh, That would be just just north of Anchorage. 
While he was treating the man, the paramedic mentioned that he had he had hunted in the Port Chatham area. And at that point, the elderly native sat up, grabbed him by the front of his shirt and asked him, did it bother you? Did you see it? <laughs> so obviously, you know, that that's something important for the natives of that area. They know that, yes. that there's something there. I've uh, went back and I found a couple of interviews with uh, people who were former residents or family descendants of former residents of uh, Portlock area. One was interviewed, this was back in the 80s, early 80s, and uh, she stated that she remembered as a young adult, uh, she was fishing at a nearby waterfall, and she happened to look up and saw this shadowy, hairy figure, uh, she described it as, you know, 10 foot tall or so, that just immediately made eye contact with her and charged her. Again, not the typical Sasquatch sightings we would have around here, definitely more aggressive. She dropped her fishing pole, literally, I mean, turned, ran for her life. She was trying to get back to town. And she says, the main thing I remember about that is the absolute utter smell and stench of, of this beast. She said that while she was running, she was literally gagging and almost vomiting. It was so bad. She finally cleared the tree line and it kind of rushed down over the hill and the creature just kind of abruptly stopped like right there. like it's guarding the forest it's guarding the woods again the stench the smell that that seems to be pretty typical with sasquatch bigfoot uh, the falc monster or boggy creek monster you know but there's also that natural almost like a paranormal uh, sickness nausea vertigo body shakes when you exp- uh, spend extended time there in the woods also very typical you hear about the bigfoot throwing rocks yeah Again, I think it goes back to the size, but it seems to be a little bit bigger scale here. Like a rock the size of bowling balls or basketballs are tossed, you know, and big entire pieces of trees, you know, tossed. They're hitting the two sticks together, which again kind of seems to be some form of a communication. Roars, howls, different things like that. Like I said, at one point they reported that an entire partial tree got thrown like a hundred foot collapsing one of the homes in in the town that's just as if there's not enough things to kill you in alaska i mean you're trying to sleep at night and your whole house collapses because something attacks you this isn't my story but uh i used to work with a guy you might remember him too he worked there at emerson with us for a little while but he was from alaska he was our it guy for a while and he was telling me one day and this is not bigfoot related but i always like this story and when he was young you know he would ride his bike all over and go to his friend's house he said there's Nothing quite so thrilling as turning a corner and noticing that you're being chased by a grizzly bear as you're biking to your friend's house. And yeah, like you, you suddenly said, find that extra energy. Yeah, like you said, you know, you're you're talking, you know, there's enough stuff in Alaska that's out to get you grizzly bears and things like that. Then you add on, you know, giant killer Bigfoot to the list. Yeah, and, right. You know, that's that's pretty bad. Now, I think Bill actually mentioned there is a TV series that is out. I think we're in mid-January here. I think it's up to like maybe episode four or five. Uh, And it's called um, Alaskan Killer Bigfoot. And it has to do with the whole Portlock uh, area, the cannery, the the villagers that fled for their lives uh, there in, I think it was 1949. They are now the, the elders of the town have kind of outgrown this new area that, that, that they are at and they're, they own this property at Portlock, their ancestors do, so they have claim to it, but none of them have dared to go back to reestablish it. Now, not saying they haven't went there, they've tried to hunt, but they don't even like to spend the night there. I mean, at most, it's it's a stop. 
So the main part of the the TV line series, and if you want to check it out, you're more than welcome to, is is the elders have got a small group that's gone to the Port Lock area. Uh, I believe they're supposed to stay there a total of 40 days, and they're to see what's left of the old town. They're to check uh, the hunting, the fishing, to see if it could support the villagers possibly moving back. One of the things that I thought was really unexplained is that was 70 years ago that the town was abandoned. There was so much fishing there. As you said, they had an entire cannery. This thing was huge. Well, the, the reason it was established is because the, the salmon population in the area was so healthy. Yes, just wonderful I mean, fishing just, waters. You know, like, like you, you, could pra- you could just reach in and grab them practically. 70 years. Now, nobody living around here. They go out to the waters and they're they're setting what we would call trot lines in in our rural area, but you know long lines with multi hooks across on on floaters bobbers. They're lucky to catch one fish out of like forty hooks overnight. Why has that area not just exploded with population? You well, would think. Okay, I mean, I'm going to go with my first instinct, which is to say that you know overfishing and all that has probably taken its toll. That I mean. Salmon, you know, they don't just stay in one place, right? They they swim and they move and they travel. Eh, touche. And I'm sure that that there's a lot of commercial fishing in the area, probably. But but yeah, like you, you would know, think I mean, to your though, point, in the you lagoons still, and stuff, there would still be more still fish than luck. that. So yeah, they're they're not doing so well uh, on trying to uh, basically feed the four of themselves, much less you know a town moving back in. But there's a lot of stories that they share on on the series and. And you can believe what you want. You know, it, it is a TV series, so it's kind of like Ghost Hunters and, and some of those other ones. But there were some. I know we've said this before, Eric, and I, I know I've told you this before. Just because it says it's reality TV. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean it's real. Mean it's real. Yes. One of the um, interesting, more interesting things, uh, they found an obelisk that is off the shore. It is, I won't say at the highest point, but at an elevated point that it could be viewed from one of the port harbors, the, the, the lagoon areas. It's a darker rock. It has some strange carvings on it. They have not dated it at this point, but I mean, so much moss and stuff is growing over it and it's decayed probably seven foot in height. Now, one of the, um, the men that's on the scouting party is, is quite a devout religious person. And, uh, he had a religious token that he wore around his neck and for whatever reason, stage TV or whatever, I'll say that he decided that he would place that on the obelisk in his way of a token. Because that's your first reaction. That's your first. Why wouldn't you do that? It's like, what? Well, then they go back the next day and they find that, you know, I guess he'd wrap the chain around it or whatever. The chain was broke. The, uh, the holy symbol was lying on the ground smoking and smoldering. Eh, reality TV, I don't know. <laughs> but they have, they have made some pretty interesting discoveries, pieces and parts of the old cannery, uh, which burnt twice. Uh, one time exploded, and they could see kind of the aftermath of ripping those riveted tanks and stuff over them. They found um, a cache, a hole that was buried, lined with logs, and it almost resembles that of uh, a pirate's uh, cache. They actually found a few uh, old coins and stuff in it. And some speculate that maybe that was one of the villagers' uh, you know, hidey, hidey spots, placed maybe where if they needed to escape quickly, they could hide food supplies, that kind of stuff in it. But I thought it was interesting that they found like some old 
I think it were Spanish coins and stuff that was that was in there. We talked about the Port Chatham, the Portlock, that that region. But when we kind of got into this, I thought, you know, I wanted to talk more about just Alaskan Bigfoot in general. I didn't feel like we could kind of focus on just one area. And we probably could, honestly, if we were making a TV show, but we're not. We're doing we're doing a podcast here. In the early 1900s, in the Rangel, Wrangell area, and I'm, you know, again, we're going to say it wrong. We're going to get it wrong. Uh, there were multiple sightings in, in that region in the early 1900s. Um, one, one anecdote is there was a starving German prospector who was trying to make his way back to Wrangell. I'm going to say Wrangell. From a northern mining camp. They were low on food and provisions, so he was kind of eating what he could find, berries, and I think they called it firegrass. Hmm. Firegrass. Yeah. Apparently, you can't eat a lot of that before it kind of makes you, you know, upsets the stomach. Kind of like Taco Bell? <laughs> <laughs> Not a sponsor? Not a sponsor. <laughs> um, but apparently, he ate as much as he could, and then he fell asleep. Uh, he was awoken later by the sounds of a conversation happening nearby. Now, of course, he's out there in the wilderness by himself. He wakes up. He's happy for the company. You know, he, he's wanting somebody to talk to. He's, he's alone. So he, he tries to locate the speaker uh, when he finds what he called a bush woman who was a giantess, in his own words, covered in hair, uh, sitting on the ground, sort of um, with her legs in a circle, he said, with a little one in her legs, feeding uh, the smaller one berries by hand. Hmm. So he was, uh, you know, he didn't stop and be friendly. Uh, now, I know we've talked about how violent the Alaskan Bigfoot can be, but, but not long afterwards, there was another encounter. Uh, a a three-year-old child had wandered away from her home and gotten lost in the woods. They had tried to find her all day. They'd had no luck. But right about dusk, um, out of the woods comes striding this massive, hairy beast with this little girl cradled in its arms. And he walks up uh, and places the child on the ground, uh, you know, kind of outside the wood line where everybody can see him. And then he turns and walks back into the forest, uh, leaving the child there unharmed. And apparently she learned how to play stickball while she was gone. So maybe oh, wow. maybe Sasquatch has a you know he's got a playful for, streak for kids. I didn't want to kill this. They didn't want to kill this kid. You know, <laughs> taught how to play ball. There's another one which which I like this one a little bit. In the 1930s, around the Nelchina Plateau, they they had what they called the Gilyuk, um, which kind of translates to a roughly cannibal spirit. And there was a, a local. I don't know. He was he was sort of an important. I don't know if he was an elder or a chief, but he was sort of important in his tribe. And they had moved into the region, and they were they were hunting caribou for winter use. They were going to stock up, you know, food and supplies. But they discovered that the Gilyuk was in the area. They had seen him there, and uh, it became obvious to them that the Gilyuk was not interested in caribou, for he was an eater of men. And later on, the the elder's wife remembers going down to the the waterways after he had gone down to to wash up. And finding just his his bloody flannel clothing left behind, Eesh. where apparently the Gilyuk had gotten him, and 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 you know I'm assuming ate him. Yeah, that definitely seems to be a trend. There's a 1940 in the Bristol Bay area. A group of women had gone out picking berries when they came upon a large man-like creature with long black hair running down his back. Uh, the village kind of assembled itself, you know, sometime later, and went out to capture the creature, which they did. They they caged it and they fed it and they took care of it for a while. Uh, they, they fed it a diet of raw fish, but, you know, maybe there was something wrong with the diet. Maybe that wasn't enough. For whatever reason, the creature's hair began to fall out. And at which point it revealed that it was a female from, hmm. you know, apparently, apparently the breasts were covered by the hair. And, right. Right. 
Uh, but but she uh, shortly she died shortly thereafter. So she was not meant to be in captivity. Another another good one. Uh, 1956 in the Ketchikan region, about 50 miles southwest of, of that particular area, a man was out fishing and he had anchored for the night. Uh, he was kind of sitting there setting up camp when he thought he saw a bear sitting down on on shore on its on its rump, you know, kind of you know on his butt like like a bear might. When uh, the eight foot tall creature stood up, looked at the boat for a few seconds, then just turned and walked away. He the guy estimated the creature would have been 350 to 400 pounds. Covered with blackish reddish hair, two to three inches long. He said it walked on two feet in a very ape like manner, and, and later on biologists were able to go to the area and find big human like footprints on the beach that, that went from the beach up to the wood line. Later on, a young boy reported seeing a very similar creature in nineteen sixty. Uh he was sent out to haul in a fishing boat that had been tied off to a float for the night. Uh he left his flashlight pointing to- up towards the the shoreline from where he was at. Uh, when he looked up and he saw a human-like creature standing in the water, up to its waist between the float and the shore, and it was watching him. Uh, he described it as not exactly a person, but with arms and a head like a man. It was uh, grayish-white all over and had what he described as big, round, beady eyes. Now he, The red, beady eyes definitely yeah. seems to be a trend. Now, he reacted reasonably by screaming and running as fast as possible, at which point 30 men rushed out to see what was happening. They shone their lights on the water... And saw the creature there in the water and, and watched it dive underneath the water and swim away in what they described as a frog-like manner, you know, with the, the, the arms mm-hmm. and the legs kicking out. So, you know, that, that was one of those rare ses- swimming Sasquatch moments. So, so what is this thing really? I, I don't think really anyone knows. Uh, the natives, uh, again, right now, they seem to be referring to it, at least in my research, Nantinuk. To them, it seems to be more of a spirit or an elemental. Uh, as I said, or at least can control some of the elements. Nantinuk is blamed for the cannery being burned to the ground twice. Yeah, that name comes up a lot in the Chatham region. Seems to have control over water or, to your point, is in the water. Um, one of the things that was reported, again, that was kind of uh, different from our local Bigfoots was it's not uncommon for small boats to hit something in the water like something is beneath it, trying to flip it. Now, that that could be a, a whale or something. I mean, obviously, this is Alaska. But at one time in particular, there was a group of two fishermen that were out in a, uh, I'll say, a small fishing boat. It was about a 15-foot, but you know, not super small, not like a canoe. And um, it was a, a clear day. They could see no debris was in the water. And they hit something lightly. And, you know, they kind of looked around maybe hit a stump or a log floating. And again, it was a second time, slightly a little harder. And the third time, this thing like rose up underneath them and flipped their boat. Uh, They said they saw brown fur. Now, most whales that I am familiar with do not have brown fur. And it like splashed in the water angrily. And then to your point, they didn't see it necessarily swim off, but it like dove under the water and disappeared. Not at all like what what we have here uh, in the Missouri Ozark area, at least. The uh, television show that we mentioned, I, I thought this was somewhat humorous. They um, had called into some different Bigfoot hunters across the nation and said, you know, look, we're here for 40 days. We're trying to understand what this thing is. Can we live peacefully with it? You know, can our can our group come back and establish here? For whatever reason, they decided to put together some alleged Bigfoot calling 
sound clips. Then they had a loudspeaker that they went out into the woods at night, of course. I see the look on your face, Bill. No, I, I before we get too far, I, I saw a comic online just, just earlier this week, maybe last week, where they were talking about doing, you know, Bigfoot sound calls at night and mm-hmm. things like that. And it's it got to be at night. It was, it was a mock-up where they were, like, interviewing Bigfoot. He's like, and then this jerk comes out and starts saying something about how my mom had sex with goats. <laughs> I don't even know this guy, you know? Exactly. <laughs> well, they decided to start playing this, and they cranked it up, you know, high. And again, to the point, alleged Bigfoot calls, but let's say they, they were. We, you, they don't have any idea what it is being said. So, yeah, you may be calling out to another Bigfoot that your mama's a furry goat or something. Yeah, you that, know. yeah, yeah. But needless to say, they did get some responses, and it was interesting because it was like three different responses that almost surrounded them immediately. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but but this show, or it may have been another show, they uh, had a thermal cam mm-hmm. at one point, and they got a very clear visual yes. on a bipedal. You could see a head, a body, yeah. swinging arms. Yeah, like a, a, a definite big Sasquatchy looking creature Kinda on this coming thermal down camera. Over the hill. So, Again, whether, okay, we go back to the early, just because it says it's reality doesn't mean it's real, mm-hmm. but still, you know, sometimes when you watch those shows, things like Patterson-Gimlin film, mm-hmm. you know, to, to this day, we, we we argue the veracity of it, whether it's true, whether it's not. You have people that come forward to say they were part of the hoax and whatnot, but the greatest costume designers of the time say they could not duplicate yeah. what you saw today, that day. Today, it wouldn't be that hard to do. But. So, it, it's one of those things where... Yeah, like you said, today it would be difficult to do. So how do you emulate that? How do you duplicate that? Sasquatch, my understanding, moves in a way that that a human being just can't. So yeah. when you see that footage, and and I haven't seen the footage, I read about the footage and didn't mm-hmm. actually get an opportunity to see it. Yeah, just the so. the stature, the way they're walking, the way they're carrying their body, the stride. It's not human like. It, it would be more gorilla like, but yet on two legs. Which again, that's not a, a gorilla. It. Anyhow, they start playing all these sounds. They got three different responses from all around them. Literally, it was like they were being surrounded. We had the rocks being thrown. We had the two pieces of wood being clacked together. Uh, Started hearing howls, grunts, uh, growls, and it freaked them out. So, of course, you know, they're like, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. So they turned everything off and retreated. There was another time on the series where there is, and I can't remember the species of tree, but it was like, it's guaranteed to be like over 300 years old, just massive, again, dungeon and dragons type-esque, <laughs> this huge gnarly looking tree that had been there for centuries. And there was these giant claw marks on it. And I have to say, that's exactly what they look like. Uh, it wasn't rubbings. It was carved into the tree and spaced out like three inches apart okay well i was gonna say a huge hand if it was bears mark trees like that but yeah i mean they're not to that yeah caliber level and and it just looked like whatever this thing was this tree had something it liked or didn't like one of the two uh it had dug around you know the area so one of the gentlemen he decides to build kind of a uh, makeshift tree stand like we would have around here for deer hunting or whatever and again, it's it's always best to do these things at night. So we go out and pitch dark. He goes out by himself. Uh, he climbs up the little uh, makeshift ladder, and he's probably 30 foot or so up in, in this tree, not any means to the top. And another thing that is 
to this area for whatever reason there seems to be a dense fog that rolls in off the mountains often and i will say while they were airing it it was clear when he went up the tree and you could just watch this fog come down it was like out of the 13th warrior movie kind of thing and just encompasses everything and he starts hearing the the clashing of the the wood together grunts and growls at one point, he even feels like something is moving this gigantic tree, like leaning against it. You know, he was he was flipping out. He he wanted to get down, but he couldn't see what was down there. He's shining the flashlight. It just was in the fog. He couldn't see. It, it's an interesting show, uh, I will say, to to look into. I think but, I uh, think it receives mixed reviews online. So. Yeah, I mean, I definitely I stumbled across it when I was researching you know, for this, it, it kept coming up and it's probably some of the newest footage that that's out there. But, uh, I can see why they called it the Alaskan killer Bigfoot. Cause obviously it does have a more aggressive tone, but my personal belief, I, one of the early podcasts that we did and I brought it to the table was giants in America. I, I am going to lean more towards that. I, I don't think it's a single entity and I don't think the natives there, they believe it's a, a family, a tribe, a clan, you know, obviously multiples, but I'm going to lean more towards just my personal opinion, a giant like creature that is probably covered with hair again, due to the environment, cold temperatures. Well, if if you want to go, my take. if you want to go with a, with a scientific bend on this, there is a, a family tree of, of hominids that sort of petered out that were larger than we are stature wise. We we can only assume they were covered with hair. I believe it's a Gigantopithecus, mm-hmm. and I mean we can we can almost prove. Well, we I, I said we absolutely can prove that some of us have Neanderthal DNA, so we know that the the Homo sapiens we are today existed concurrently mm-hmm. with Neanderthals. So you know maybe maybe Gigantopithecus did find some isolated places where he he survived, and he's out there roaming around. I mean, again, from a scientific perspective. You have scientists that absolutely say, okay, there's no such thing as Bigfoot. And then, like, Jane Goodall, who's, I mean, I would argue, well, an educated woman, spent a lot of time out in the wilderness. Yes. And, and she's like, oh, no, there, there's the possibility. I, I, You know, she believes. So, well, And again, if you were going to hide out, Alaska is probably, out of the land that we have, the most unexplored, most well, when you sparsely say populated. When you say there's one person per square mile, you, you still have cities in Alaska. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, it's you not concentrate for sure a person every yeah, mile. You concentrate a bunch of people in Anchorage. That means there's a whole lot of place out there where there's nothing. A lot of the uh, the bush pilots and stuff that fly in, you know, when they drop people off, they're like, you know, you are days. If you if you could walk through some of these areas, you are days away from help. If you get injured, there's a good chance you're not coming out of there because it's just so sparsely populated. So. I, you know, I think if, if they do exist and, and I'm, I'm more of a believer on the giant aspects cause they have found proof. They have found skeletons. I'm going to put my aluminum tin hat on and say, you know, I think that's one of the government cover up conspiracies, uh, you know, all the way back to Victorian era, they found just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of skeletons and they just all seem to vanish. You know, they, they don't want us to know about it for whatever reason. I'm going to stake the claim that I think it has something to do with a giant version. That's my take. Take it for what it's worth. Well, anyhow, we will leave that all up to you to decide. But uh, this is uh, an interesting uh, exploration of some of uh, Alaska. And in particular, 
an area that's known as the Alaskan Triangle, similar to the Bermuda Triangle. and Which we will cover th- the Alaskan Triangle on its own later on. Yeah, there's a lot of things that go on up in Alaska, and, and Bill and I have been talking. I think you're going to be hearing some more of those uh, in future podcasts. But we hope you enjoyed tonight's version of the Alaskan Bigfoot. Thank you for joining us. And this is just yet another example of what you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thank you for listening. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.